welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Six cases this week, including a biggie from the 7th and a trio from the 9th. And we get pretty heady with some crimigration. Also, I note simply that the 5th Circuit amended its decision in Merza v. Garland this week, a case discussed on episode 55 of the podcast, but as so often occurs, nothing new or very important popped out at me following a side-by-side review. And finally, I want to give a shout out to my good friend John Kasravi and his new project ImmigrationToolbox.com-Magazine. A new edition of the magazine just came out, and it has everything that an immigration attorney needs, from marketing to removal defense. Congrats again, John. On to the show. First up is Avila de la Rosa v. Garland, published by the Seventh Circuit on June 24, 2021. This case is about defective notices to appear, or NTAs, and it's the first published decision with a favorable ruling on defective NTAs since the Supreme Court published Nis Chavez. The podcast rejoices. Mr. Avila is from Mexico and was placed in removal proceedings in May 2019 after being served with a notice to appear that did not have the date and location of his first removal hearing. And all of that happened after Pereira v. Sessions was decided by the Supreme Court, by the way. Mr. Avila filed a motion to terminate proceedings shortly thereafter, in June 2019, very timely. But the immigration judge denied the motion and ordered Mr. Avila removed to Mexico and the BIA affirmed, holding that, quote, he had not shown that the defects in the notice prejudiced him in any way, end quote. Because after all, according to the BIA, Mr. Avia had received a notice of hearing with the missing information shortly after receiving the NTA. The Seventh Circuit remanded in a big way, and to be honest, contrary to what I thought was the law. It was the Seventh Circuit's decision in Ortiz-Santiago that really kicked off this whole NTAs or claims processing rules thing. 
which I've always read as requiring a prejudice showing to succeed. But according to the court, Ortiz-Santiago actually stands for the proposition that termination of removal proceedings for violating a mandatory claims processing rule, like the NTA requirements, quote, does not depend on a showing of prejudice, end quote, when timely asserted. Rock on. Not only that, the Seventh Circuit expressly held that a follow-up notice of hearing will not cure the claims processing rule violation, and it relies on Ms. Chavez to so hold, stating that, quote, the Supreme Court recently ratified our position. In Ms. Chavez v. Garland, it held that Section 239A requires a single, complete notice to appear, end quote. The Seventh Circuit in no way distinguished Ms. Chavez as having arisen in the cancellation of removal context. So, Seventh Circuit practitioners, let me be clear. It appears that every single removal proceeding pending in immigration court, initiated with a non-compliant NTA that has not been amended, provides grounds for termination if the issue is timely raised. Quote, a non-citizen who raises a timely objection to a non-compliant notice to appear consistent with Ms. Chavez and Ortiz-Santiago, is entitled to relief without also having to show prejudice from the defect, end quote. In six pages, the Seventh Circuit kind of blew up the immigration court system in the Midwest. But then again, quote, no amount of policy talk can overcome a plain statutory command, end quote. Practitioners everywhere else should also probably start filing related motions, because the timeliness clock for arguments based on this decision may start now. What's timely? Well, the Seventh Circuit's 2020 decision in Alvarez Espino v. Barr apparently stands for the proposition that once an appeal is filed with the BIA, it's, quote, far too late, end quote. Under such circumstances, a non-citizen can still get his proceedings terminated, but only by showing prejudice. But it seems to me that all moments earlier than a BIA appeal are in play, and may mandate termination without a prejudice showing. Huge congratulations to counsel. Excuse me while I'm a culpa. So, one of the quotes from Ortiz-Santiago is, quote, Relief will be available for those who make timely objections, as well as those whose timing is excusable and who can show prejudice, end quote. I, like everyone, assume that this and other quotes from Ortiz-Santiago, in addition to claims processing case law, meant that prejudice was required in all cases. But this panel disagreed, and in rereading the above quote, it seems I was sloppy in my grammatical reading. Quote, the prejudice requirement in Alvarez Espino derives squarely from Ortiz Santiago, in which we held that relief will be available either, one, upon a timely objection, or, two, both excusable untimeliness and a showing of prejudice, end quote. Don't take any argument for granted, y'all. And that is Avila de la Rosa v. Garland. Next is Matter of Moradell, published by the BIA. This case is about special immigrant juvenile status and drug convictions. Mr. Moradell is from Honduras and was brought to the U.S. without authorization when he was four years old. 
He was placed in removal proceedings, but shortly thereafter, he filed a petition with USCIS to be classified as a special immigrant juvenile, which USCIS approved. By the way, and while the case doesn't get into it, I believe that USCIS could only approve that status because Mr. Moradell must have obtained a state juvenile court order, finding that he was a dependent on the court or that he was in the custody of a state agency or department or an individual or entity appointed by the court, that he could not be unified with one or both of his parents because of abuse, abandonment, or neglect, and that it was not in his best interests to return to Honduras. Complicated stuff. But because the State Juvenile Court and then USCIS made these findings, Mr. Moradell has a special path to a green card in immigration court through the Special Immigrant Juvenile, or SIJ, program. However, in 2017 and before his removal proceedings concluded, he was convicted of possession of 50 grams or less of marijuana in violation of Section 2C, colon, 35-10A4 of the New Jersey Statutes which Mr. Moradell conceded made him inadmissible under INA Section 212A2AIII. A pretty big problem for non-citizens seeking to adjust to lawful permanent resident status under pretty much any provision of the INA. However, and bear with me on this quote because it's the crux of the case, INA Section 245H2B, which is a special adjustment provision applicable to SIJ applicants, allows an immigration judge to waive inadmissibility under INA Section 212A, quote, other than paragraphs 2A, 2B, 2C, except for so much of such paragraph as related to a single offense of simple possession of 30 grams or less of marijuana, end quote. So the SIJ INA provision allows an immigration judge to waive some inadmissibility provisions where the individual possessed 30 grams or less of marijuana but the IJ determined that the language that I just read meant that he could only waive it as it relates to inadmissibility under INA Section 212A2C, the drug trafficking provision that the clause about waiving 30 grams or less of marijuana immediately followed in the statute. The IJ determined that he could not waive simple possession inadmissibility under INA Section 212A2AIII, which is the first clause in the quote, and it's the provision under the INA that makes inadmissible those convicted of an offense simply relating to a controlled substance. Doesn't really make sense as a matter of logic, as drug trafficking is more serious than mere possession, and in any event, a drug trafficking conviction is probably always also an offense relating to a controlled substance. So the waiver provision would therefore be meaningless. However, and maybe you need to see the statute to really get it, it does appear based on the wording of the statute that the exception might only apply to Section 212A2C. But here, the BIA disagreed with the IJ and explained that yes, indeed, the statute allows immigration judges to waive INA Section 212A2AIII inadmissibility and Section 212A2B for that matter if based on a conviction related to a single offense of simple possession of 30 grams or less of marijuana. I won't get into the BIA's analysis based on the canon of statutory construction known as the, quote, rule of last antecedent, end quote. But as you can guess from its name, it's quite the page-turner. 
And the BIA also relied on what I kind of just said. It wouldn't make sense to apply the waiver to drug trafficking, but not drug possession, particularly as, quote, simple possession is by definition not illicit trafficking, since simple possession does not involve any intent to transfer or exchange, end quote. Remember that, by the way. But how to determine whether the conviction was indeed for 30 grams or less of marijuana? Well, the BIA instructed IJs to use the ever more applicable circumstance-specific approach, not the categorical approach. The BIA noted that it is already determined that the circumstance-specific approach applies to the similar waiver provision at INA Section 212H, and that the Supreme Court did not vacate that holding in its 2015 decision, Malouli v. Lynch. Proceedings were therefore remanded to the IJ for further consideration of the waiver application. Congrats to Anna K. Byers for Respondent, and to Clinic for getting your amicus brief cited, relied upon, and appreciated. Back to the circumstance-specific approach. At first, I kind of thought that application of the circumstance-specific approach might be kind of good for Mr. Moradell here because he has the burden, as explained in Parade v. Wilkinson from the Supreme Court this term and discussed on episode 45 of the pod. Mr. Moradell's conviction technically allows for conviction if he possessed between 30 and 50 grams, so it seems potentially good for him to be able to go beyond the statute and explain that indeed he only possessed 30 grams. But then I thought a bit more about it and saw that Mr. Mordell was arguing for application of the categorical approach, which led me to remember that Pareda really was about evidentiary burdens. In that case, what crime was the non-citizen actually convicted under, and what happens when the non-citizen withholds his conviction documents at the relief stage and doesn't allow the court to figure it out? Pareda, however, appeared to leave open for another day who has the legal burden under the categorical approach and at the relief stage if the fully provided evidentiary record remains unclear as to whether the respondent obtained a disqualifying conviction. The BIA avoided that whole issue here by holding that the circumstance-specific approach rather than the categorical approach applied to this specific relief inquiry, meaning that now, and in light of Pareda, Mr. Moradell likely needs to produce his entire conviction record and prove that he possessed 30 grams of marijuana. And oh, by the way, in a footnote, the BIA reaffirmed that the personal use exception in INA Section 237A2BI also calls for a circumstance-specific inquiry. Sneaky, sneaky, guys. And that is Matter of Moradell. Next up is the first in a trio of Ninth Circuit cases this week, Boggle v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on June 23, 2021. And in this case, the Ninth Circuit analyzed the personal use exception in INA Section 237A2BI and held that it requires the circumstance-specific approach, the very issue that the BIA mentioned in that footnote I just discussed, and on the exact same day to boot. It doesn't get much more exciting for a case law nerd like the one that I've become. Judge Pearson dissented in this very complicated 54-pager. Mr. Boggle is from Jamaica and became a lawful permanent resident in 2010. However, 
He later obtained a conviction under Georgia Code Section 16-13-2A, pursuant to a, quote, conditional discharge, end quote, which meant that once Mr. Bago completed his probation, he did not obtain a conviction under Georgia law. But immigration law is a pain in the matter of but, and the definition of a conviction is not governed by Georgia law, but rather is governed by INA Section 101A48. And a drug conviction that satisfies INA Section 237A2BI will make an LPR removable unless the conviction is a, quote, single offense involving possession for one's own use of 30 grams or less of marijuana, end quote. Sound familiar? Now, Mr. Bogle pled guilty under a Georgia statute that criminalizes possession of more than one ounce of marijuana. An ounce of marijuana is 28.5 grams, so says the decision. So if the plea agreement is what governs and the categorical approach applies, Mr. Bogle isn't removable. But the police report in the case states that, in fact, Mr. Bogle possessed 47.12 ounces of marijuana, equating to 1,335.852 grams of marijuana. But who's counting? If the circumstance-specific approach governs the inquiry, thereby allowing an IJ to review that police report, Mr. Bogle is in trouble. And it does, and he is. First, the Ninth Circuit held that yes, the Georgia offense is a conviction under immigration law, even though it's not a conviction under Georgia law. This is because even though there was never a, quote, formal adjudication of guilt, end quote, Mr. Bogle did plead guilty, and the criminal judge did order some form of punishment, namely, four years probation with the, quote, first 16 days to be served in confinement, end quote. That satisfies INA Section 101A48's definition of a conviction. But heads up, it may be an open question whether mere probation without that 16-day confinement would so qualify. Don't assume anything. Kind of the theme of this week's episode. Turning then to the 30-gram or less exception, the Ninth Circuit deferred to BIA precedent and agreed with other circuit decisions holding that the circumstance-specific approach governs the inquiry. And it also held like the BIA kind of just did, that the Supreme Court's decision in Malouli v. Lynch did not alter that prior case law. While Malouli in 2015 held that INA Section 237A2BI is governed by the categorical approach, it did not, apparently, hold that the statute's 30 gram or less exception is so governed. And that's what's at issue here. Because the circumstance-specific approach applies, the court is not limited to merely the elements of the crime, as the categorical and modified categorical approach would require, but instead can look to the, quote, conduct involved in, end quote, the crime, potentially opening up the door to any evidence deemed reliable and fundamentally fair. Here, the evidence showed that Mr. Bogle possessed well over 30 grams, particularly as he never explicitly challenged the accuracy of the police report's reference to that amount of marijuana, and kind of, quote, essentially admitted to it, end quote, during his in-court testimony. DHS therefore met its burden to show, by clear and convincing evidence, that Mr. Bogle was removable for having possessed more than 30 grams, and held that indeed, Mr. Bogle is removable going to dive back into the Pareto issue. So Mr. Bogle lost, but there was a bit of a favorable holding from the majority in my opinion. 
in a footnote, and in an effort to combat the dissent. The majority makes clear that Pareto was indeed all about the factual inquiry of what Mr. Pareto was actually convicted of in the unique situation where you're at the relief stage and neither party has produced the conviction documents. Because the conviction documents were produced in the case here, quote, we can move on to the second inquiry, end quote. But that same logic might be much more favorable if it was the categorical approach that governed rather than the circumstance-specific approach as the court's reliance on Moncrieve v. Holder seems to apply, and as is the case with most criminal INA provisions. It seems to me, based on Pareto itself and the logic in this footnote, that it does remain a completely open question. How will the legal burdens be applied at the relief stage when the categorical approach is the governing framework? All of the conviction documents have been produced, but the legal inquiry remains unclear. And that is Bogle v. Garland. Next is Carr v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on June 21, 2021. This case is about changed country condition motions to reopen. Ms. Carr is from India and was forced into an arranged marriage in 1993. Her husband turned out to be a horribly abusive alcoholic. This all continued even when the family entered the U.S. on tourist visas, and Miss Carr had him arrested for a bunch of abuse, eventually contributing to the husband's removal back to India. Miss Carr and her four children remained behind in the United States. The husband eventually died of alcohol-related illnesses in India, and the parents-in-law blamed Miss Carr and threatened her with death. Procedurally, the case is a bit complicated. Before asserting all of that abuse against her husband, Miss Carr and her husband applied for asylum together in 2001, claiming, among other things, that during a stay in the Philippines, Miss Carr was raped by militants. But apparently that was a fabrication, and Miss Carr's abusive husband was the orchestrator of that lie. The IJ denied the couple's asylum claim based on an adverse credibility finding. And I'm not really quite clear how an Indian couple applied for asylum based on alleged past persecution in the Philippines, so they probably made Indian-based claims, and it's probably the case that that whole Philippines stuff was just extra made up by the husband. The decision isn't clear. After losing her asylum case with her husband, Ms. Carr and her husband appealed, and then filed many motions to reopen with the BIA. Ms. Carr alone, however, filed her final motion to reopen in 2018, based primarily on changed country conditions in India for women, such as herself, and the fact that now, her abusive husband had been deported to India and passed away. The BIA denied, but the Ninth Circuit reversed. First, it held that the death of her husband and the threats from his parents did not constitute a, quote, self-induced, end quote, change in personal circumstances which would bar a motion to reopen under Ninth Circuit precedent. Instead, it equated to a change in circumstances in the country of removal, quote, entirely outside of the petitioner's control, end quote. Such a change will lead to reopening in the Ninth Circuit if it's material, even if, quote, personal to the petitioner, end quote. Not only that, but the changed personal circumstances make relevant changed country conditions in India, namely that in India in recent years, there has been a, quote, increased violence against women, especially widows, end quote, such as Ms. Carr. 
The panel lays out a bunch of reasons why, based on country condition evidence and creating their own percentage statistics based on that evidence, a practice that I find very persuasive. All of this made Miskar prima facie eligible for asylum, which is the last prong required to succeed on a changed country condition motion to reopen. To meet that standard, the petitioner, quote, need not conclusively establish that she warrants relief, end quote, but rather merely establish a, quote, reasonable likelihood, end quote, that she would succeed if given the chance to present her claims. The BIA had also denied based on a finding that, even with the new evidence, Ms. Carr hadn't shown that any harm would be on account of her membership in a particular social group. The Ninth Circuit disagreed with that, too. According to the court, not only did the BIA fail to consider Ms. Carr's status as an Indian widow, but her particular social group consisting of membership in her husband's family was clearly a central reason for the harm she feared from his parents, and a quote, person may share an identity with a persecutor and nonetheless claim persecution on account of that same protected ground, end quote. And remember this, quote, the prima facie burden does not require her to show that other members of her family have been similarly mistreated, end quote. Even for regular asylum claims, it's only similarly situated family members who matter and might potentially undercut an asylum claim if they remain safely in the home country. So not saying Miss Carr's daughter, because she has no reason to fear her grandparents. And in any event, quote, the safety of similarly situated members of the family who remained in the country of origin may be pertinent to a claim of future persecution, but does not itself disprove it, end quote. Casually dropping monster quotes. Love it. The Ninth Circuit remanded on the Convention Against Torture Issue 2, finding that the BIA applied a standard higher than merely a prima facie showing required for a motion to reopen succeed, and holding that the evidence that her husband's parents are wealthy and that, quote, India suffers widespread corruption and that officials respond ineffectively to crimes, especially against women, end quote, met the prima facie standard. So the case was sent back, likely for Miss Carr to have the opportunity to present her asylum claim before an immigration judge. Congratulations, Robert B. Job, on the win and the many, many great quotes. Here's a bit more. If you haven't already figured it out, if you have an asylum, CAT, or motion to reopen claim based in any part on gender in India, I encourage you to read and cite to this very relevant, helpful, and quotable decision. Here's another quote, for example, supporting a but-for-nexus analysis, similar to that applied in the Fourth Circuit, just begging to be analogized to, quote, If the familial relationship did not exist by virtue of the arranged marriage, Carr's husband and in-laws would not have threatened her or planned to harm her, end quote. Finally, worth noting, though, in a footnote, the panel quickly disposed of a similar yet contrary holding published by a different panel in Rodriguez v. Garland, discussed on episode 47 of the podcast. So there are certainly competing views and different camps in the Ninth Circuit on the issue. Now your judge. And that is Carr v. Garland. Wrapping up the ninth, we have Zamorano v. Garland, published on June 25th, 2021. 
This case is primarily about voluntary departure. Mr. Zamorano entered the U.S. unlawfully in around 2000, when in the third grade, and he has never left the U.S. It appears that he was placed in removal proceedings after coming into law enforcement's crosshairs due to DUI and disorderly conduct convictions. Without an attorney, he conceded removability and represented himself as an immigration judge inquired about his relief eligibility. After inquiring, the IJ determined that Mr. Zamorano did not have the qualifying relatives required of non-LPR cancellation of removal and that he wasn't eligible for asylum. That left only pre- or post-conclusion voluntary departure under INA Section 240BA and BB, respectively. This decision involves the former, easier-to-obtain form of voluntary departure, which has a similar effect to a non-citizen simply withdrawing his application for admission at the border. Although worth noting, in Mr. Zamorano's case, even if he leaves with pre-hearing voluntary departure, he's still going to be barred from re-entering for 10 years due to his unlawful presence in the U.S. And Irira gotcha. Anyway, the IJ denied pre-hearing voluntary departure as a matter of discretion, based on Mr. Zamorano's two DUIs and some minor drug and disorderly conduct arrests and a conviction, which are probably also the reason Mr. Zamorano didn't apply for or doesn't have DACA. Just speculating there. Mr. Zamorano filed his own appeal on the voluntary departure denial and a bunch of other things that, quite frankly, are kind of all over the place but which on the other hand demonstrate the absurdity of having non-citizens represent themselves in immigration court and before the BIA. After the BIA dismissed the appeal, Mr. Zamorano petitioned to the Ninth Circuit with counsel, and here, the Ninth Circuit remanded on pre-hearing voluntary departure. Although the Ninth can't reweigh an IJ and the BIA's weighing of factors to deny pre-hearing voluntary departure, quote, where there is no indication in the IJ's decision that the IJ considered any of those favorable factors when deciding the voluntary departure issue, we generally vacate and remand to the BIA, end quote. That's what the Ninth Circuit held happened here. In essence, the IJ considered only the criminal history of Mr. Zamorano, but didn't even really inquire into the positive aspects of his life, much less consider them in totality. Having deemed remand required, the Ninth Circuit rejected the remainder of Mr. Zamorano's arguments. It held that the IJ properly complied with 8 CFR section 1240.11, even though the IJ didn't provide Mr. Zamorano an opportunity to apply for asylum, because Mr. Zamorano didn't express a fear of persecution or harm in Mexico, despite being asked. Rather, he stated merely that, quote, I fear I don't know how to start a new life in a new country, end quote. According to the Ninth Circuit, that doesn't trigger the regulatory requirement to allow Mr. Zamorano to then apply for asylum. The Ninth Circuit distinguished this case from the very favorable Quintero v. Garland decision out of the Fourth Circuit and discussed on episode 57 of the podcast, stating that even if it agreed with the Fourth, the IJ's many duties only apply to, quote, pro se petitioners whose factual circumstances warrant relief, end quote, and who would otherwise, quote, struggle in articulating the legal basis for his or her claim, end quote. Again, not the case here, because the Ninth Circuit is saying that Mr. Zamorano has no asylum claim at all. The Ninth Circuit further held that even if Mr. Zamorano was eligible for a U visa, and there was some confusion here because apparently his mother has a pending application, 
IJs have no duty to advise non-citizens of their apparent eligibility under the governing regulation. The Ninth held that Mr. Zamorano failed to exhaust his other arguments, including the IJ's failure to advise him about DACA, distinguishing the issue from the Ninth Circuit's favorable exhaustion case law in the illegal reentry criminal context. Plus, the Ninth Circuit noted that that case law might no longer be good law following the Supreme Court's decision directed at the Ninth Circuit in United States v. Palomar Santiago, discussed on episode 57 of the podcast. So congratulations a bit to Joseph V. Bui and Robert A. Olson for petitioner. Pretty fact-specific decision, so we'll move right along. And that is Zamorano v. Garland. Finally, we have Moreno Osario v. Garland, published by the Fourth Circuit on June 23, 2021. This case is about asylum and related relief and aggravated felonies. Mr. Moreno Osario entered the U.S., accepted voluntary departure from an IJ, and returned to Honduras in 2016, meaning that he avoided a removal order and its attendant 10-year bar from re-entering the U.S., kind of what Mr. Zamorano wanted in that Ninth Circuit decision we just discussed. In Honduras, he and his cousins were then approached by armed Mara 18 gang members, who made known that they believed he had money because he had just been in the U.S., and that he could either pay them, or he could join the gang. Or he could be killed. He fled back to the U.S., and he didn't report the threats to the Honduran police, believing it pointless and actually dangerous, as a friend of his had been killed for doing a similar thing in 2012. Mara 18 continued to threaten him and his family after he entered the U.S. that second time. And at the border, he claimed, based on this new evidence, that if he was returned, police would alert Mara 18 of his return and he'd be killed. He was deemed to have a credible fear at the border, and he was placed in immigration court proceedings to present his claim before an immigration judge. ICE detained him initially, but then released him from custody. But then, in a move that's not helping anyone, he was convicted for unlawfully wounding in violation of Virginia Code Section 18.2-51, and he was sentenced to 12 months imprisonment. In removal proceedings, the IJ denied asylum, finding that the conviction was an aggravated felony and therefore a particularly serious crime for asylum purposes, and that Mr. Moreno Osario, while credible, had not been targeted on account of his membership in any particular social group or other protected ground. Therefore, the IJ denied withholding of removal, and the IJ also denied Convention Against Torture Protection. The BIA eventually affirmed it all, as did the Fourth Circuit. First, it agreed that Virginia Code Section 18.2-51 is an aggravated felony crime of violence, as defined at INA Section 101-A43-F, something that's only potentially possible, by the way, because Mr. Moreno Osario spent at least a year in prison. And because the conviction is an aggravated felony, it's a per se particularly serious crime that barred Mr. Moreno Osario from asylum. The court rejected Mr. Moreno Osario's argument that the Virginia criminal statute didn't per se require violent force, as the crime of violence definition requires, finding the inquiry directly controlled by the Fourth Circuit's 2020 decision in the sentence enhancement ACCA context, United States v. Rumley. And mostly, this is because the statute requires that the individual act 
with the specific intent to cause severe and permanent injury. Turning then to withholding of removal, the Fourth Circuit relied on its fabulous Amaya decision, but then determined that Mr. Moreno Osario's proposed particular social group of, quote, returning migrants from the United States, end quote, lacked particularity, as it is far too, quote, amorphous and overbroad, end quote. This finding apparently aligns with similar ones from at least the Fifth, Eighth, and Ninth Circuits. As to cat protection, the Fourth Circuit affirmed that substantial evidence supported the BIA's finding that the Honduran police weren't even willfully blind to Mara 18's torture, because the record has evidence that Honduras is trying and taking steps. For example, the court noted that the Honduras, quote, Police Purge Commission, end quote, had recently reviewed the conduct of 14,000 officers and removed nearly 5,000 of them from service. Honestly, I kind of think that cuts both ways, but this stuff is tough and sometimes line-splitting. Mr. Moreno Osario, therefore, lost his case. But two more cheerful things before I let you go. Of note, the Fourth Circuit firmly rejected Mr. Moreno Osario's argument that the Rumley decision wasn't binding because it arose in the ACCA context, stating that, quote, Lest there be any uncertainty, we confirm today that the phrase physical force under 18 U.S.C. section 16 and the ACCA have the same meaning, end quote. And with that, I respectfully direct your attention to the Supreme Court's Bourdon v. U.S. decision discussed on episode 59 of the podcast. Finally, I believe that policy guidance may have been issued or forthcoming that will have CBP transfer individuals with credible fears like Mr. Moreno-Osario to the USCIS Asylum Office for a first bite at the apple before initiating removal proceedings, a policy that will allow asylum seekers to first present their asylum claim in a non-adversarial setting, and only if denied, transfer them to immigration court. Such a policy will likely help asylum seekers and do a lot to resolve that 1.3 million pending immigration court backlog. And that is Moreno Sario v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.